Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 155 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. And before we get to this week's guest, Jay Buchanan from Rival Sons, I want to remind you about all the great Mistress Carrie gear you can get in the shop at mistresscarrie.com. New to the shop, Cocktails in the War Room Slate Coasters. These are veteran-made, and they come in a set of four. But the shop has got everything from shot glasses and pint glasses to coffee mugs, T-shirts, beanies, tank tops, hoodies, stickers, 7-in-1 bartender tools, and even clear plastic waste bags that meet all the requirements to take them into concerts and sporting events. You'll find all that and more. Just go to mistresscarry.com and click shop. My guest this week, Jay Buchanan, is the lead singer from the band Rival Sons, who are getting ready to release their latest album, Dark Fighter, coming up on June 2nd. I caught Jay while he was getting ready to hit the road on tour, and he was driving around, picking up his dry cleaning, and running his last-minute errands before getting on the tour bus. We talked about touring his extended family time during COVID and being a dad. He told me all about the experience of singing the national anthem at Gillette Stadium. We talked about his upbringing and all the music that he grew up loving. And we talked about the future of rock and roll and so much more. Rival Sons are on the road and you can see him at the Palladium in Worcester coming up Wednesday, May 31st. You can see them on Friday, August 25th at the Bank of New Hampshire Pavilion in Guilford, New Hampshire, opening up for the Smashing Pumpkins. And on Sunday, August 27th at the State Theater in Portland, Maine. Get the details on all the shows on the event calendar at mistresscarry.com. And if you want to see Rival Sons outside of New England, check the show notes of this week's episode. You'll find all the links to find J. Buchanan online, to find Rival Sons online. You'll find all of my links as well and the link to this week's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist for every episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast that's filled with all of my guest music and 
all the artists and songs that we referenced in the interview. So allow me to introduce you to Jay Buchanan from Rival Sons. Hello, Mr. Buchanan. Welcome to the show. Hi, Carrie. It's good to see you. Good to see you, too. Um, It happens from time to time that people that I talk to on the show are currently driving. So you're in the car right now. Just be careful. I am being very calm. I'm going to pull over in just a moment. (laughs) I needed to. (laughs) Well, we're getting ready to hit the road right now. We're going to be out on this long, uh, goodness, like six week tour in the U.S. And so when you're getting ready for a long tour like that, there are always a large number of things and loose ends that you've got to shore up at home for the family, you know, the house and just get getting things together, getting all your dry cleaning together, make sure, making sure that your instruments, that everything's accounted for, you know, your checklist. Most people have to go through that for like a week long vacation, but you guys have to do it for like a six week long tour that you're basically just picking up your life and that's right. Taking off. That's right. We've been doing it for so long that um, it is, it's a large undertaking, but I think that once you've done it so many times, you just develop a checklist, you know, you develop a rhythm on how to get it all, pull it all together. Before I was on the radio, I was a, a roadie, for lack of a better word, for a few years at Tech. And it's definitely something that you get into this rhythm, like you you know to idiot check hotel rooms before you leave. Like you just get so used to traveling that you that you become really good at it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you definitely. I remember early on getting started with all of that. <laughs> the thing is like, like the dummy check that you're talking about when you leave the hotel room and you're thinking like, okay, no, I need to go back. I need to, to do another sweep. And, um, and now I've, I'll find myself pulling it all together, leaving the hotel, leaving the hotel room and having that confidence going like, no, I did my sweep. I don't need to do another one. <laughs> I'm a pro. Because you're so used to traveling, how hard was it for you to kind of unplug your life and stay home because of the pandemic? That's really trippy because, A, it was devastating. But B, it's the greatest gift I could have been given, you know? And I think that it's that, like, double, double-sided thing for people, like... For me, having to slow down in March of 2020, I mean, everybody had to, right? You know, everyone went into isolation, the lockdown. Remember when they said, uh, okay, we, we're just going to need you to stay, everyone to stay home for two weeks. Flatten the curve. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but so many things happened, you know, for all of the devastation. I didn't lose anyone that was very close to me due to covid I lost other people throughout that time period that I was very close to, but it wasn't COVID. But with everything that we were going through, you know, my wife and I found out that, you know, we had another baby coming and we found out in February of 20. So it was like, great, you know, and I'm just thinking, Oh man, what's it going to be like? She's going to be super pregnant. I'm going to be gone. I'll be out on the road need to make sure that I'm there when, you know, 
that I need to make sure that I fly home when the child's born and, you know, and just thinking schedule wise, how am I going to do this right now? This is going to be very taxing. Well, Carrie, I was, because of the lockdown, I was able to be there to comfort my wife and, and be with her through like that entire process through her entire pregnancy uh, and share that together and to help her out, you know, carrying a child is a, it's kind of a big deal. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of work and such a revelation. Yeah. You know, in which, uh, in what reality could I have ever done that? And not only that, but you know, I was able to be there when my son was born. And then subsequently I was able to wake up every day and be with, uh, be with my child, you know, and be with my family every day for the first like year of his life. I mean, I, given the choice, I would always work. I always work. I always tour. I love my job. And, you know, that's what I do for a living. And it's more than a job. That's who I am. So I would always choose to work. But I was forced to stay home. And what a gift I was given. You're not the only person that said those things to me because guys like Mark Tremonti and Aaron Jones, they had kids at that same kind of time. And they talked about, you know, having other children that they weren't able to be around as much because they were always out on the road. And because of COVID, that, that's me. Yeah, I've got, got other to kids. That time. I've got other kids. Same thing. You look at it and you go like, oh, man, I wish I could have. I wish I would have gotten this. I wish I would have had this sort of time with those kids as well, but it just works out the way it does. You and I saw each other for the last time in 2019 when Rival Sons had come through Boston and you guys came up on my show and played acoustic. You were Mm -hmm. out supporting Feral Roots. And then Mm -hmm. you guys left town. This is right before COVID. And then you came back to Boston. Tell me what your Gillette stadium experience was like singing the anthem All right. tell me what this so, is like for you so check this out um the patriots tapped me and i then this is the funny thing i lived in tennessee i, I was in uh nashville and i was living out there and management gives me a call and says hey um do you want to go out and do this national anthem for the uh, Patriots game. Um, I said like, yeah, you know, they're going to be playing the Titans. I go, Oh, well I live in Tennessee and they want me to come up and do that. Okay. Absolutely. It's a hell of a, it's a hell of a song to sing. So I fly up there and um, it was really great. <laughs> I'm sitting on, first of all, I, I, I get up there and I'm right on the 50 yard line, right in the middle. And this is before anyone showed up and the stadium was empty and you can see the fog. You can see the mist through the lights and everything up there. And they have me sound check really quick and they don't have any in-ear monitors set up for me. I'm talking to the guy and I said, Hey man, like how am I going to hear myself amidst all of this delay, like super delay. And he's like, uh, I don't know, you could wear earplugs or something. I'm just going, like, 
oh shit, what am I going to do? <laughs> but anyway, so then I go back to, um, I go back to a little green room they had set up for me, you know, with some like, uh, you know, I don't know, some beers and chips or whatever. So I'm sitting back there going like, well, all right, I guess it's just going to be what it's going to be. And I, I've got my buddy with me. And then when they bring me out, once the game's about to start, the energy in that place was insane. I'm very much used to performing for a crowd of, you know, 50 to 100,000 people. I've done it many, many times. But those are concert goers. And the energy at a concert is very different than the energy of a stadium filled with football fans. Especially New England oh, football fans. I had I had never experienced something like that. So then I walk up and there's like the full military guard behind me. And uh and I didn't know, but you know, as I'm singing, they have like fireworks going off behind me and everything. And it was trippy because that was the first time in my life I had ever been introduced as uh two-time Grammy-nominated artist, oh! J.B. Cannon. <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, all right. So we went, uh, and I sang. I watched some of the game. And, uh, and of course, uh, Patriots lost. We don't and, need to dwell on that. <laughs> yeah, I know. But I remember thinking like, oh, wow, this is actually, that was a historic game right there. Wow. And... Um, yeah, it was just, it was a great, it was a great experience for me. They take and all I, that natural, stuff seriously. Minutemen in the end zones and the. Yeah. And the, uh, for me, the experience of singing the national anthem, I took the classic route. I sang it as traditionally as I could. I wanted to honor the song. You know, That's our national anthem. I've been on stage so many times, Carrie, I, I couldn't count. I've performed and had to, sing so many times but it's very very different when you are getting up there in front of for television in front of all of these people and you're singing the national anthem you can get freaked out because you're thinking like i know the i know the song i know all the lyrics but just thinking like what if something happens what if something happens what if i forget what if i what if my mind wanders? It's and all I, out there. You're letting it all hang out right there in front of in front of everybody. I don't think I've ever felt nervous about singing a song in that same way. Just going like, oh my God, this is like hallowed ground. This is, you know, vocally, that's like the sacred cow. I, it, you know, it all it all worked out perfectly. It was it all worked out fantastically. Taking your version not. off the off the plate. Okay, taking the Jay Buchanan version off the plate. Does Whitney Houston get the goat for best version of the anthem ever? Who do you think sang it the best ever? Because everybody's done it. And and either yeah. gone the okay. traditional okay. route Whitney. or... I'll take Whitney Houston. I will take Whitney Houston. Um, her rendition was incredible. What a voice. There are a lot of great vocalists out there. Whitney Houston just nailed it. Um, Chris Stapleton's most recent, his version with, uh, him playing guitar. It was beautiful. Yeah, it really was. But then one of my other absolute favorites 
was in the late 80s, um, Marvin Gaye, or in the mid 80s, Marvin Gaye went and sang it, had a little drum machine going, or a drummer. Um, and he did it at a Lakers game. And if you look that up, it's pretty cool. It's a, it's a tough mountain to climb, the anthem. It was not written to be easy, that's for sure. No, you got to start low. Don't start too high. <laughs> You'll really screw yourself. Tell you. Well, you're a that's runner. What they, that, that's what they say about the, the, the Boston Marathon, too. you got to go out early because it's going to kick your ass at the end. So you got to pace yourself. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yep. Can we talk a little bit about your musical upbringing? It's one of the things that I really started focusing on is is how the soundtrack of your childhood kind of shapes your musical identity as you get older. So my theory is there's the music you get exposed to as a kid that's kind of unwilling exposure, your parents, the cool uncle, siblings. Mm -hmm. And then you hear something at some point in your adolescence that you go, no, 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 wait, that's mine. And then everything changes from there. So what was the soundtrack of your childhood? And then what changed music for you? Oh, goodness. Well, that's that's a great way of putting it. You're absolutely dead on about that. You get the music that is around the house and that your parents are into, right? But then once you discover something and you feel like it's yours, it's part of your identity. That's a completely different, completely different thing. Um, so what did you ask though? So what was the soundtrack to your childhood? What did you grow up hearing musically? And then what was it that changed everything? Okay. For me, it was, um, early on, I think until the time I was four, probably it was all, it was rock, you know, some folk, mostly like Joni Mitchell, um, but rock music, you know, everything from, there's Led Zeppelin, a cheap trick, and the Rolling Stones, and all of that stuff. But then Joni Mitchell, um, and uh, but then my parents they like got religion, and then you know that that Christian uh, the evangelical uh, wave that swept the country, you know, and that just in the, just before Reagan took office. Right. And I I was so young and then they, I think they were maybe, I think like a lot of, a lot of people at that time, I think that my parents were probably wanting to repent for their hippie ways, you know, and like raise their kids, be responsible, you know, um, and do the best that they could. Right. So then they started going to church and like no more, no more of my pop's record collection. I he gave it to my uncle, and then it was a lot of church music. Then it was a lot of Christian music and um, not so good. Now, even with that, there was a lot of singing in church, and there was a, like my mom would sing in the in church, um, and my pop would play guitar for the church too. So there was still, there was a ton of music. And I think that the most valuable thing, that valuable aspect of all of that was in church, I was able to, you know, sitting there 
I saw an entire room full of people just get up and just sing. And they sing, they clap their hands. And But being around in an environment where everyone is singing, everyone's singing every week, clapping their hands and, you know, doing their like worship music. I think that there was something very, very special about that for me. Because you could pick out different people's voices and the way that they sounded or the rhythm and how they clap their hands and everything, their way of expressing themselves, their way of, you know, they're doing this worship music and their way of doing that, you know, and thinking, wow, okay, for them, they're singing out. Are they singing to, they're singing to God, which the, any idea of God or whatever, it's such an abstract for a very, very young child, you know, much less, I think it is for adults too obviously. Yeah, we're still trying to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. So, um, but being around all of that, I think was very crucial for me because music and and like the human voice singing was always something that felt so vulnerable and it sounded so personal um, that it it was immediately, it felt like a language, but it felt like a secret language. It felt like the language that everybody speaks when they have to tell the truth. Because if a person is singing and they're trying to sell you a version of themselves, you can hear the pitch. You can hear the sales pitch, and I don't care who it is. You can hear the sales pitch, but then when you hear someone that is just vulnerable, you hear that too. And so it's like you're getting you're getting a, two different messages. You're getting the, the lyrics that they're singing to you, but then you're also their inner voice, their inner vulnerability, their inner truth is also coming out. And that's something that is beyond words, and that's something that you can't lie. You can't – there's no sales pitch for that because uh, it's just vulnerability. It's nakedness. And so for me, getting around all of that was, it was very valuable for me. But not only that, but growing up in a Pentecostal church environment, I mean, it was wild. We're talking about people speaking in tongues and like the whole thing. Like snakes and stuff, right? Like all of it? We were doing, no, there was no like snake handling. (laughs) There is, that is is a branch of, of the Pentecost, but. No, no, not for us. Um, but growing up that way, I think it was so it was so valuable for me because it also it also like as a four or five year old, watching adults completely surrender themselves emotionally in every way to something higher than that they were openly seeing as something very much higher than themselves. And again, like I told you, like this idea of God or Jesus Christ. And I, I don't, you know, these are like wild concepts, you know, and the whole, the whole thing. I'm not focused on that. I'm, I'm watching the adults. I'm watching my parents and I'm watching all of the adults just break down, you know, and giving their testimonies and just totally surrendering themselves like all the way. I think that watching people do that gave me a keyhole view of of human vulnerability and that 
I think that all throughout my life as a child, everything, I just saw all of the adults as like kids who got old, you know, I saw them as, I never looked at, I never looked at adults as like infallible in any way, you know, because I just saw like, Oh, well adults are, they're just kids that got older. They're very emotional. They're very charismatic and they, they're just kids that got old. And I think that that, that helped me throughout my life and to see that commitment to watch these parishioners have this commitment to their worship and their, their Sunday um, ritual, you know. How did you make your way back to rock and roll, though? Oh, no, for me, you know, my parents, they went through their, like, intense churching time. I mean, you know, that was done by the time I was probably 12, you know. And then they're, to this day, they're still very religious and uh, very God-fearing Christians. Uh, But for me, I just, it never really, didn't really take hold. You know, the, um, the aspect of, uh, being a, a churchgoer or even like, you know, for me, I, I, I tried to go to different churches and study different religions and everything. Like all of them, it just, the shoe just didn't fit for me. And so for me, any relationship with creator God or the cosmos and all of that, I mean, that's just a never ending mission, but getting back to what you just asked immediately for me music was everything you know and listening to like music on the radio and listening to music that wasn't christian as they called it secular music oh it it had me at any time like i was i had a voracious appetite when i would go to any of my friends houses or whatever i was that nerd that would be like so do your parents listen to music do, do you guys have any records? <laughs> Does your family have listened to tapes? Do you guys have CDs? What do you have? Where, where do your parents keep their music? <laughs> I was that kid that all, all of my friends would be like, huh, what? I'd be like, yeah, yeah. Do you guys have a stereo? And I would listen and I would hang out at my friend's houses and we'd be playing with our toys or GI Joe's and I'd always want to put music on and listen to whatever music their family had and check things out and uh that's where that's where my interest was so the, for me um being a little kid like i knew early on that music was what i was going to do like that i knew that that's exactly what i wanted to devote my life to and in what form and in which way i wasn't sure so i became a singer songwriter early on and then like when i heard you know, I, my parents got back into buying records and listening to music. And um, so then there was a, a lot of blues music around our house. Um, everything from, uh, you know, Robert Johnson, to Howlin' Wolf, Blind Willie McTell and Blind Willie Johnson and um, all of this music all onto like the Steve Miller band and just everything. Um, I loved music. I knew I did. And then I remember hearing, listening to, uh, it was Jimi Hendrix that really grabbed me in terms of rock. I heard Jimi Hendrix 
on a movie commercial and it was purple haze i think i was 11 years old i heard that and i go what what was that i never heard anything like that before so then i had this uh, literature teacher in my middle school and I, i wanted to talk with him about music and he would let us play he would play music in class and he would let us bring music to play and none of my other friends or none of the other kids had like tapes or you know had music to bring i would bring music it's I, you so know. weird how some people are music people and other people aren't like you and i are music people where it does everything for our life and then there's those people that just aren't and i don't understand them be afraid of those people <laughs> um i think um for me, it was just music was everything, right? So this teacher, he would, uh, he, I would buy tapes and I would bring them to him and he had a, a big record collection. And I said, will you put those records on tape for me? Like I was 11, I was 11 years old, 11, 12 years old, right? And then this guy, he, he gave me Jimi Hendrix's entire discography, Jimi Hendrix live at Monterey Pop Festival. Otis Redding's complete recordings um, and uh, Bob Dylan's, you know, like first six records and all this music. And I, that's exactly what I wanted, you know, and I would ask him, can you do this record and this record? And for him, I think that he was looking at it like, who's this little kid? What? <laughs> all right. Well, he wants this stuff. Okay. Um, and but it was Jimi Hendrix and the Jimi Hendrix experience and then the band of gypsies that really for rock, it was like, Oh my, what planet is this guy from? Cause this doesn't sound like anything. It, if that Living happened from- with the Beatles and then it happened with Hendrix. Like there are just these lines <clears throat> that things just changed once they arrived. And Hendrix is one of those guys. It just changed everything. Well, H- Hendrix was just pulling from a, he was drinking from a pool that nobody else did. I mean, Miles Davis, you know, certainly went there, but like he was just, uh, he was from a different planet altogether. And I don't mean like, Oh, how wild, what a wild, you know, showman he was like, no, you listen to his production and his songwriting. Like now heavily influenced by Bob Dylan, obviously, but what he did and what he was bringing back from the that other side, that other dimension was just completely different, completely different than what rock music was doing. There's a so lot then, of people that think he had synesthesia, that he that he associated music with colors, that he saw notes in his head, which is, I guess, a thing. Yeah. And some people yeah. think he had it. Well, whatever he had, uh, thank you. <laughs> So then I, there was that. And then I heard, uh, I remember hearing Led Zeppelin hearing like their first record. That was the first album I heard of Led Zeppelin. I heard that in ninth grade. And uh, so I was, you know, 13 years old. And that was really like, oh, whoa, whoa. Who are these guys? Listening to it and going like this album. Whoa. And, um, and that was a, you know, I loved Led Zeppelin in high school. And, but, okay, so getting to it, that was really about as far as 
rock and roll went for me or rock music. And look, everybody loves the Rolling Stones, you know, everybody loves that, you know, that. Yeah. Everybody loves the Beatles. I never got like super into the Beatles. I had rubber soul and Sergeant peppers and, you know, but I, I didn't even have a revolver until I got older. But uh, there was all of this music going on. But what's funny is like rock, I really grew out of rock by the, you know, as I was moving through my teens. So by the time I was like 17, I was just kind of done. You know, I was into the singer songwriters. I was into artists that were singing about different things. And because, you know, it was just what I was into intellectually, you know, what I was studying with philosophy and everything. I think that I associated rock mostly with all of that posturing and all of the, um, you know, that form coming ahead of function. Well, it's part of a show. Rock is always kind of this live experience thing and that's all part of it but the singer songwriter thing is very naked and and emotional exactly and that's much more what i identified with and then um i really didn't listen to rock music at all until i got with um until we made rival sons that was really like i was not making rock music you know and it's not that i didn't like it and it's not that I wouldn't put on rock every now and again, you know, because I loved like Queens of the Stone Age and, you know, there's, but it wasn't part of like my vocabulary and it wasn't artistically where I was at as an adult. But then when, once we got together, it was like, oh, well, I guess uh, rock's pretty fun, you know? <laughs> I just, like this is this is a good this is a good time for me, and then I, I think that I was also at odds. Like, well, I don't know, I'm not into all of the rock and rolliness of of rock music or like the the lifestyle or that image. Like, man, that's not really me. But I think that that really um, knowing that okay, well, this is my mission now. I think it be it began for me my journey of trying to find my own voice within the genre and trying to inject my ideals into our music and sing about the things that I wanted to sing about and write the melodies in such a way that um, just write music that I wanted to convey through that genre. I love asking songwriters this question. Um, And this is a songwriter's question, not a favorite song question. Very different. Um, any genre, any artist from a craft perspective, can you give me an example of a song? If you looked up songwriting in the dictionary, that this song would be a perfect example and then break it down as to why you think it's so brilliant. And it doesn't matter any artist, anything, but just a song you look at from a craft perspective and go, Oh my God, that's perfect. Well, um, you can have pop songs and then you can just have, written songs. I mean, Paul McCartney is a savant, you know, and so is Brian Wilson, but I'd have to say, uh, for something that moves me, I'd have to say like, um, telling a story. That's what a song is. A song is there to tell a story. It's not just 
you know, to cling, clink, uh, beer steins to, you know, it's, uh, it's there to transport you and to tell you a story. And one of my favorites would be Poncho and Lefty from, from Towns Van Zandt because it, it tells you a story. Um, it, it gives you the full picture of, uh, of these two bandits. And I just think it's such a beautiful, beautiful song. You're getting ready to release a new album called Dark Fighter on what is becoming like rock and roll day. Like that is going to be the day to go to the record store because there's such amazing music coming out that day. Foo Fighters, Avenged Sevenfold, Rival Sons, Jelly Roll, Buck Cherry. Like for some reason, the world is converging on June 2nd. And it's so exciting because there feels like this renaissance of rock that you guys are a part of. Do you feel that way? That it's a really exciting time to be a rock musician right now? I think, yes. Yes. I think that when, once I zoom out, I'm able to see that, you know, and, um, well, that's great. I'm happy to hear that all of these, all of these records are coming out. And, uh, but there's really only one that you need to pay attention to. Yeah, it's yours, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Come on now. No, I mean, I, look, I, it makes me happy because um, it's healthy for the genre, right? It's healthy for rock music. And I'm looking forward to, I'm, I'm looking forward to see where rock goes. I'm looking forward to seeing where rock goes in the future here. You know, I think that I like, I keep waiting for that one band to pop up that does things completely differently. Right. And that, that changes the genre a little bit, because I think that rock needs that. I think that rock needs that, that shift. It kind of needed um, to go underground again and kind of pop back up out of the grave differently. Like it needed it, it needed to not be the most popular genre for a while for people to kind of figure out what it's supposed to be again. I could see that. I could see that. And, you know, it's like um, rock. Like rock is. Well, it's been it's been relegated almost like worldwide in a pop sense. Like rock has been relegated to like uh, for the most part when you ask the average person or teenager well, it's like associated with the novelty of like a particular decade, you know? And I don't think that's what rock is supposed to be. I think that what is different, you know, the reason that hip hop, hip hop rules the world. I mean, we all know that. But hip hop is innovative and it's constantly changing and it's constantly innovating. And I think that with rock music, paying a little bit too much homage to tradition, I think that it will keep it in the past. And I think that it needs to, I think that more hybrids of what rock is, I think we need to see more of that. And I think that we will. And I think that that's going to be the the survival of the genre. I think it's going to be through diversity. Well, you guys are going out this tour you're preparing for where you're out picking up your dry cleaning right now. You've got yeah. some examples of these bands out on the road with you, like like Starcrawler, who, you know, if you've never seen oh, yeah. Arrow DeWild on stage, she's channeling something from somewhere. Oh, it's great. It's great. And, you know, we've got that. We've got um, 
the Black Angels, you know, a tremendous band. And then we've also got the record company. You know, the record company is a great band too that we've yeah. played with. And, um, you know, we're just we're trying to put together a great night of music. It's as much as we want everybody, okay, show up for us. Well, it's like we also want to make it a good, um, we want to make it uh, an event for everyone, you know. And so picking the right bands uh, to tour with like that, uh, thinking of what the night is going to be is always part of the process. And that music always sounds good in an old theater like the Palladium. That's where we're going to see you guys May 31st. Mm. And that mm. rock music just always sounds so good in one of those old theaters with the perfect acoustics. Yeah. I love those old theaters. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to that for sure. When you're out running your errands, I, I got to ask you this before I let you go. Uh, there are not a lot of g- guys in rock music that have as strong a hat game as you have. <laughs> like, what makes a good hat? Because... There are different looks on stage, right? There's like, you know, the showmanship of like Freddie Mercury with the costumes and the beads and feathers and like all of that kind of stuff. But you've got a very specific look and there aren't a lot of guys that have good hat collections like you. You're kind of bringing back hats. (laughs) Do you got to pack them all up in a road case to put those on a truck? How does that work? You got to. Well, (laughs) okay. first of all, thank you. And I'm not trying to be um, funny. Think, you have really good hats. Well, that's good to hear. That's that's great to hear. <laughs> um, let's see. I think that I like larger hats for the most part. Um, like the big black hat that the preacher wears, like in the Nobody Wants to Die video, and or that I've worn that that big black hat on stage. That's just a resist all um, hat that I bought down in the stockyards in Fort Worth. Uh, Texas. I picked that up and it was a this ridiculously large hat. And I go and I, I see it. And I go, oh man, that reminds me of uh, this movie that I love by Alejandro Jodorowsky called uh, El Topo. And this character, he wears this big hat. And it's really sinister looking, really weird looking. And I, so I bought this hat and I I go to purchase it and they go like, well, do you want it shaped? I go, huh? They go, yeah. Do you want it shaped? You know, love where the sides come up and like a cowboy hat. And I go, no, I just want it flat. And they go, you want it flat? <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to crease in the top or you don't want nothing. Because go, that's no, the thing. You can that. watch YouTube videos and how they shape those hats. Cause they don't come yeah. that way. I like a flat brim hat. And then, so there's that. And then, my other two hats that I wear most often, those are made for me by, by hand, um, by a hat maker in, uh, Val d'Osta in Italy. And, uh, and the, the name of the, the hat company is Don Reno and he makes my hats. Now I was just over in Italy back in January and he made me a new one. It just, he doesn't like, he's not a huge company. He makes them very specifically, intently and he does a great job so yeah you're bringing hats back man i don't get to talk about hats very often on the show so i'm glad i got to talk about it with you well that's good to hear (laughs) i'm here i'm here to serve well i know that you have errands to run and things some groceries whatever else you got to do before you hit the road so we're going to see you may 31st at the palladium just a few days before the record comes out 
on June 2nd. It's going to be a very busy 2023 for you. I hope you got enough rest when you were home not being able to tour because you guys are going to be busy this year. Oh, don't I know it. It's <laughs> been this, this year's already been a banger. I'm looking forward to getting back out on the road. And I mean, really, I'm so looking forward to playing this record live. You know, and then we have it. We have uh, the Lightbringer album that's going to be coming out in October. Well, after all of this time working on creating this music, I think getting to finally live these songs live on stage, that's like, that's the real life of a song is how it gets to live night after night. You know, when you're, you're figuring out how to, well, how to play it a little bit differently every time you play it. So you never get bored of it. And that's the real life of a song, you know, uh, for a musician you know, for a performer. So I'm, I'm just, I'm really looking forward to living these songs for a while. You know, it's like a, it's like a good blood transfusion whenever you have a new record. Well, hopefully after Dark Fighter comes out, the next time you get introduced, maybe it'll be three-time Grammy Award nominee, Jay Buchanan, <laughs> or maybe Grammy <laughs> Award winner, finally, from the rival side. That would be nice. We'll see what happens. Hey, you know, a couple statues would be nice, but I'm here. I'm here for the ride. That's right. Way. Well, I can't wait to see you at the end of the month. Thank you so much for pulling over to talk to me. You got it, Carrie. Always great talking with you. And uh, we'll see you at the Palladium. Yeah, we'll see you soon. Drive safe. We'll see you later. All right, bye-bye. Bye. There he is, Jay Buchanan from Rival Sons. The new album, Dark Fighter, is out on June 2nd. And the band is out on the road playing headlining shows and opening up for the Smashing Pumpkins on the World is a Vampire Tour. Get the details on all the New England shows in the concert calendar at mistresscarry.com. For the rest of the tour itinerary, check the links in the show notes of this week's episode. You'll find all of Rival Sun's links, all of Jay Buchanan's links, and all of my links as well. And you'll find the link to this week's corresponding playlist. I make a playlist featuring all of my guest music and all the songs and artists that we referenced in the interview. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to like, follow, and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, and every weekday you'll get the sit rep, which is all of your rock news, music updates, entertainment headlines, and pretty much everything you need to know to start the day, and it's only five minutes long. And besides, you never know when we're going to release a bonus episode. You can join me live every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern on the official Mistress Carrie Facebook page for my weekly video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And you can hear me every day on the Mistress Carrie radio show. Get the details on all that and more at MistressCarrie.com. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.